0: to think about this for yourself is to think about the future customer you're trying to serve not the customer today but your future customer because it's only when you think about the future that you're able to make the decisions and the investments and the sacrifices today to make that future come true
1: for the past two decades charlene lee has been helping people see the future she's the author of six books including her latest the disruption mindset With over 20 years of experience advising Fortune 500 companies, Charlene is an expert in digital transformation and strategy, customer experience, and the future of work. In this conversation, she graciously offers her experiences and insights with the goal of helping you to see more clearly into your own future and to cultivate the mindset necessary to navigate change and growth. Get ready for the wisdom of Charlene Lee. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and our real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome, everybody. We are honored today to have Charlene Lee as our guest for the podcast. Uh, Charlene grew up in Michigan, and she went to school at Harvard and then Harvard Business School, Uh, worked with Forrester Research for about nine or 10 years before starting her own analyst company, Altimeter, which ultimately was acquired by Profit, and she is still there now. She's the author of six books, including a New York Times bestseller, Open Leadership. Uh, Her new book, which we will talk about today uh, Charlene is also illustrious uh, in terms of her impact on leaders and people throughout the U.S., throughout the world. Uh, she's on the regional board for YPO, which is a global network of CEOs all across the world. Uh, she is an in-demand speaker who has appeared on TED, uh, South by Southwest, on 60 Minutes, and the list goes on. So, very honored to have you on here today, Charlene. Thanks so much for making some time.
0: Thanks for having me here.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, let me ask you a little bit about your background uh, leading up to when you first got started with Cutco. So, you grew up in in Michigan, is that right?
0: Yes, um, in the Detroit area, just south of Detroit, in an area called Downriver.
1: Downriver, okay. Well, tell us a little bit about, uh, there's a lot of amazing Cutco leaders who started right in that area, right around the time that you started, by the way. So it's a pretty incredible uh, group of people that kind of came out of the Michigan area during that time. So tell us about uh, tell us about how you ended up uh, starting with Cut Cohen.
0: And- yeah, I um, it was a uh, summer between my senior year in high school and freshman year of college, and I needed to pay for college. So I said, okay, I I needed to get a job and I just saw these advertisements in the paper. So I had a job at a hospital doing medical records entering between four o'clock in the afternoon and midnight. So it was sort of off hours. I'm like, what am I going to do all day long? I got to keep myself busy. So I answered an ad in the paper and said, hey, you can go in and and sell knives. I'm like, that's cool. What does that look like? And (laughs) So I had training and I just went out of curiosity, went to an information meeting and just really thought I could learn a lot about this. And my intention at that point was to go into medicine. My my father was a doctor. I had every intention of going into medicine. And I just thought, man, I can make a lot of money doing this. (laughs) Maybe have some fun. So I figured, why not? Give it a try. Yeah,
1: cool. Well, what were some of the experiences and and lessons that you remember from, from selling Cutco during that summer?
0: It was, I think one of the most important things was I had never done sales before. And the idea of going out and selling something was incredibly daunting. But what struck me in that first meeting was I loved the product, loved it. I just thought, I think about all the really awful knives in my drawer and the things that don't work. And it's just, it, just thought I just love the product. And so, what I learned really importantly is that when you really believe in something, it, it doesn't feel like you're selling anything. It feels like you're helping people like I'm going to help your life be better by replacing this knife. That's dull. and doesn't cut anything. Frankly, you could hurt yourself with a knife that actually will make it so much easier to help you get your jobs done. So I just loved it. And I gave some to my mother. She loved them. She still has them. She still (laughs) has her knives. And I'm like, what is this? This It's a custom knife. Uh, So I love that. It was still really hard. I mean, if you've never done sales before to learn how to do that, to walk up to perfectly good strangers and say, hi, how are you nice? <laughs> so it was really, really hard.
1: Yeah. It, at this time, did you start out by showing people you knew or was it, was it a door-to-door model when you started? It was
0: primarily people you knew, but again, being a high school student, you don't know that many people. So I went through my parents' friends pretty quickly. They all bought a bunch of knives and made a lot of money i uh the, the guy i was dating at the time i talked about that knife. she goes i already have cocoa, knives so she showed me her entire set uh-huh. had it for like 15 years or 20 years and then i started running out of people to show it to so i i did i started knocking on doors i started asking for referrals and just talking to people who i had absolutely no connection to other than they just crossed my path somehow or another
1: yeah So, I mean, your story is obviously has a lot of parallels to mine when I started, you know, I had no sales experience either. I was pretty shy. I didn't really think I could do it when I was seeing what they were describing, you know, about how the job worked. But I realized it was an opportunity for me and that there was a lot I could learn from it. And what really tipped me over was I loved the stuff. I was like, this is really great stuff. My mom's going to love this stuff. So um, having that belief that you know I could sell it because it was really, truly a great product. That's what got me. And then you know, and then I worked through people I knew and then got referrals and kind of branched like that, as, as, as you're saying. So, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, I think one of the key lessons for me, I know you may be talking about later, but I just felt so passionate about this. When I started my business, you know, I always had salespeople when I was at Forrester and other people would take care of it. And then when I started my own business, you have to sell your own stuff. And at first I'm like, oh, I can't do this. So I got a salesperson. And then I realized, no, 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 wait a minute. I went back to my first experiences with Cutco. And I said, why was it, it was still hard, but why did I get over that barrier? And it felt like the same barrier, like going out there and frankly asking people to pay me money. Mm-hmm. And I said, "I," and I finally had to say, I believe I'm adding value and I believe in being paid for that value. And I think a lot of people don't ask for the value and the money that they deserve. So I got over it very quickly because I believed in the product and the service and the value that I was creating through my work. And so because of that, I felt I wasn't asking people for money. I was asking them for a fair trade and the ability to help them. So I don't think about any work that I do as selling. I think about it. As helping. And when I take that mindset into the work that I do, especially when it comes to business development sales, changes the dynamic completely and begins a dialogue that truly is interested in helping them. I may not make a sale. In fact, I may refer them to a competitor, but I'm still helping them. And that in the end is the goal. And that comes to it. They always come back. Even if they go to a competitor, they always come back.
1: Wow. That's a brilliant insight that I feel like is what enables people who are great at influencing to become so great is that understanding deep down what we're influencing someone toward is, is in their interest. And, and if it really truly is, right? Uh, We understand that and it's much easier and and we're able to be much more powerful at influencing when we have that conviction and, in what we're offering to people. So, and I love that parallel you drew to starting your own business and having to quote sell. Because there's so many people that are going to listen to this podcast that are going to experience exactly what you just described as a new entrepreneur one day and are going to need to go through that experience. So that was cool. So you ended up, uh, you, you went to Harvard and later you went back for Harvard Business School. What did you do first for work?
0: So out of college, I was uh, in management consulting, classic management consulting, big firm, a company called Monitor. Um, There was a spinoff in Bain about five years, seven years ago. They were bought by Deloitte. But at the time, there were only about 150, 200 people worldwide. Everybody fit onto one sheet on the phone list. And it was great because I was coming in as a brand new minted college student, knowing nothing basically, and getting a lot of hands-on training. And after one year of working in Boston, decided to go to Amsterdam and live there for two years working out of Amsterdam and London.
1: Oh, Wow. So you got to live in Europe for a while. That that's awesome,
0: yeah. and a very interesting time. About two or three weeks after I got there, the Berlin Wall fell. So took a train, went overnight to Berlin, walked around East Berlin, went through Checkpoint Charlie. Doesn't exist anymore. And so it was great to be able to experience Europe on the ground at during such a momentous time. This was before the eurozone, and I had a bag full of money, different currencies, <laughs> and lots of stamps in my passport. And working in a small office, not knowing a lot of people, it would be, it really put me out there and out of my comfort zone. So early in my career, I had a lot of opportunities thrown at me because it was so hard it, because there were no people in the office. I got a lot of responsibility very early on, way before I need, I deserved it, frankly, because it ran out of people. So I stepped up, was able to lead a case basically two years out of college, when you, it's usually MBAs who lead that. Um and realized very quickly I didn't know very much. And so which, which, I was a driving force for me wanting to go back to business school because I wanted to just upskill my my knowledge and level and get up to speed as quickly as possible. And frankly, being a woman, and person of color, I realized it was going to be a struggle to succeed in the business world without some credentialing behind that. Uh, so if I wasn't going to get it just by the outwardly experiences, at least appearances, at least I would have it on my resume walking into a room, that I knew at least the basics of business and there would be some assurances that I would understand um, and be able to function in that executive role. Mm.
1: Did you find, Charlene, that as a woman, as an Asian American also, that you were sort of a pioneer in your field at that point? Like what was the environment like for women in business at the level that you were at at that point?
0: You have to understand there was nobody. There were no Asian American women role models as far as I could see. But in the same time, I was pretty comfortable with it because I grew up Asian in Detroit. And there were just so few of us that I was always the only other in the room. Mm. So I kind of am, am comfortable being an other, kind of throwing it. Just my presence was disruptive. So just be additionally disruptive on that just felt very natural. And then on top of that, not only being Asian American women working in business, I went to Europe. And they had absolutely no idea what to do with me. So I'm Asian American, American in Europe trying to do business with Europeans. And they were just like, what do we do with you? So (laughs) they didn't know what to do with me. So they just said, are you adding value? And I'm like, yes, I think I'm adding value. And they asked me all the time. Again, as a young woman too, I was 23 at the time leading a case. But you couldn't tell how old I was. But they got the sense I was young, but they didn't know how young. If they had known that I was 23 and not maybe like in my late 20s or anything, I think they would have just lost it and just I would, my credibility would have been lost. And so I felt like through the early half of my career, I was too young, and then this magical place happened, and I was too old. <laughs> so this is like there's no right age. There's a tremendous ageism happening in business, and then there's the women thing and the minority thing, and so I just kind of gave up the ghost a long time ago, and just said. I'm not going to be concerned about that. I'm going to be much more concerned about the relationship I have with the people who I'm trying to help. And if they will accept my help, I will be here to help them. And they have to understand and realize that none of these other things, none of these superficial things, these contextual things can stand in the way of us developing a deep and meaningful relationship.
1: Mm, Awesome. Awesome. That's really cool to hear. Thank you for sharing that. So ultimately your career journey led you through Forrester for many years and then to start your own company, Altimeter. And tell us about uh, the process of starting and building your own company.
0: Yeah, I was extremely happy at Forrester. Like, fantastic. I was there for almost 10 years. People don't, and I'm in the technology space, you know, you don't stay at a company for that long. And I stayed through there through the whole dot com bust and boom and everything. And I, it's just a, it's a great job, it's a really good fit for me. What caused me to leave is I wrote a book, and uh, my first book in 2008, and realized coming out of it that I didn't want to go back to just being an analyst. I wanted to think about things in a much more broad and holistic way, and I couldn't do that at Forrester. So I decided to leave and do something else. The hardest decision was to leave. I didn't know what I was going to do, whether I was going to join another company, join an agency, start my own business, but it was a decision I could no longer stay. And that was incredibly hard to do. Hmm. But once that was there, once I did that, then I could figure out what well, what do I want to do. And so I uh, went explore, talked to a lot of people, couldn't find anything, so just left. Started my company kind of as a as a temporary thing, and then it just kind of grew from there. I learned so much from starting my first business, and so many things I would do differently. But I would never regret ever again that decision to leave. I'm very comfortable working in large organizations and medium sized organizations. I've been at my, the company who eventually acquired us for four years. Because that's not the typical path that an entrepreneur has is that a lot of people like get in, go through their buyout and then leave as soon as they can. I'm really happy with where I am and partly because of the way that we structured and partly because of the decision I made about who would actually acquire us.
1: What were some of the the lessons or challenges that you had in in the early days of Altimeter that you were describing?
0: I think the biggest one is um, it's a partnership. And so when you bring on people, it's great to talk about all the things you're going to do together. But inevitably, uh, paths change, people's objectives change, and you have to say, we're going to move on for very good and valid reasons on all sides. How do you separate? How you go about doing that? There's something you don't think about at the very beginning. And also, how will you make tough decisions? How will you have governance and process around these things? And we were just focused on the building part. We weren't necessarily focused on how do we resolve the conflicts. And I think the advice I give to people starting businesses or moving into the manageable, it's all roses in the beginning. But inevitably, in every organization, there will come tough times. We have to have tough conversations. And be sure that when you're walking in with your partners, that you guys can have those tough conversations. Mm. Have a, a way to decide things when you don't agree. How will you decide when you don't agree? It's easy when, things, when everyone agrees. It's really hard when you don't agree. Who gets to make that decision? How do we make that decision? When a decision is made that you don't agree with, will you still support it 100%? Those are all things that you have to talk about, I think, and work out. As you're starting organization
1: I love that question. how will you decide when you don't agree you know when you're in a in a situation where you have other key partners around you in your business even though you're the leader there has to be some thought as to how you're going to decide and I suppose it might be different with different decisions sometimes the leader might just unilaterally make the decision but not usually right usually we're going to kind of bring it to the organization to sort of let the answer sort of percolate up right
0: yeah i like to say that the only decision I had one hundred percent Day over was where the office was located because, <laughs> and I just went darn it, I'm the working mom here. I had two young kids at home. It's gonna be within three miles of my house <laughs> <So> <laughs> That's it and everyone's was like okay, you went on that one but that's it everything else and when you're in a partnership, I may have the most equity, but I don't have a hundred percent say you got to bring everyone else along mm-hmm. and I think it's just setting the expectations that there will be a day when we don't agree how will we disagree? How will we move forward? in some cases, some really, really deep-seated disagreements.
1: Uh, it's interesting. We worked, it out.
0: we worked it out eventually, but it was painful. And, and so to have figured that out ahead of time, before the situations came up, would have been a really good thing for us to do as a partnership.
1: Yeah, cool. That, that's a, a really interesting thought. I, I think that leads pretty well into uh, talking about your books, because I know that some of the principles that uh, you have referenced here are referenced in your books. You've written or co-authored six books. New York Times bestseller, Open Leadership. Uh, you co-authored Groundswell. And your newest book, uh, which is just releasing now, is uh, The Disruption Mindset, Why Some Organizations Transform While Others Fail. And so let's talk a little bit about, uh, about some of your writings and some of the key lessons that you feel are you would look at as uh, foundational lessons uh, from your experiences that, that, that you share with the world. So why don't you take get, that around with it?
0: Yeah, sure. I, I, a key theme across all my books, and again, I come from a world of business strategy and technology, how technology is shaping business. And I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that it's never about the technology. I get asked, like, what's the bright, new, shiny object that we have to pay attention to? Is it quantum mechanics? Is it blockchain? Is it whatever else it could be out that's out there? And I'm like, you know, all those things are important, but if you look at the most disruptive companies... Look at Uber. What new technology was involved? Basically, a cell phone. He's using location. Just using it in a, in a different way applied to a particular problem. And all of the every single one of the great new businesses that are out there that we are like hold up as examples of disruptive businesses. None of them are built on new like bright shiny object technologies. What they did is they understood relationships and how the relationships and power dynamics could be changed and upended. And the reason why it's disruptive is because relationships are changed, broken apart and put together in new ways. That's why it feels so awful sometimes because we, we know that the relationship that we're so comfortable with is changing, but we don't know where it's going to end up. Hmm. So all of those, that's how I look at the world of disruption, the ways that we had a relationship or maybe not the greatest relationship with taxi drivers. And now we love our Uber driver because we know that they're going to drive safely, be courteous, have a clean car a great relationship
1: you know <laughs> makes um, me wonder why we ever put up with cabs
0: you know every once in a while i'm just like desperate and i just jump in the cab i'm like what was i thinking <laughs> That's a Poor experience, a and i feel bad for that but then you go i i traveled recently to i think it was spain and the uber drivers were wearing suit and ties i mean they were dressed up and like professional like professional drivers the uber drivers just driving their little cars And so I look at how this level of transparency just reshapes relationships in so many and unpredictable ways. And what I write about in the book is the way to think about this for yourself is to think about the future customer you're trying to serve, not the customer today, but your future customer. Because it's only when you think about the future that you're able to make the decisions and the investments and the sacrifices today to make that future come true. And a lot of organizations that say, you know, pretty comfortable with where things are. Things are very profitable here today. Why would I even want to change any of that? Take on all this pain to do something that's unclear, uncertain, like the future. And I'm like, well, if you don't, somebody else will. And if you don't, then your customer going to move on from you because you're just serving the same things and not acknowledging that even they are changing. So I have no problem with companies sticking with the status quo if it's an intentional choice that they have looked at all the other options and this is the best choice. What I don't think is wise is when you stick with the current choice of what you're doing today, because it's easy, because it's the way you've always done things. I think that's not doing the best by your customers. You're not really helping them.
1: And and that probably leads in a negative direction inevitably, you know, at some point.
0: Right. Your customers are constantly moving. They're the fastest moving part of your ecosystem. And if you're not chasing after them and moving as fast as your customers, then you're going to be left behind.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting thought of being able to see the future and consider where are things going. I I remember hearing you say, uh, you know, the old Wayne Gretzky quote of, you know, I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going or where it's going to be. Right. And being able to think about how to apply that to all businesses, right? Where's the puck going to be a year from now? Where's the puck going to be five years from now? You know, and how can we be moving in that direction? That's a really, really good insight for leaders to ponder. You write in open leadership about the concept of being open and in control at the same time. And I think that that's a good concept for young leaders to kind of wrap their minds around is how do you find that balance of being an open leader while also maintaining control in your organization that you want to have? And uh, can you speak a little bit to that concept and, and how a young leader can develop those traits?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I would just say, let's, let's, let's delve into the whole word control and what that means. Control implies that, and people are, are, especially first-time leaders, like, I can't wait to be the boss, can't wait to be the manager and the leader, because then I'll be in control. I can run things. And the reality is when you go into a managed position, you actually have no control over people. You realize very quickly you can tell them to do something. They may or may not do it. Just because you're the leader doesn't mean they they follow you. And Jim Kuzas and Barry Posner, in, in the wonderful book called The Leadership Challenge says that leadership is simply a relationship with those who are, aspire to lead and those who are inspired to follow them. And what you realize what you can really control is that relationship with people. So, how do you have a trust based relationship? How can you get people to follow you, to be inspired to follow you? This is where openness becomes really important. They will follow you because they believe you are fair, because you are honest. You are, it's very clear and you're transparent about you're working for them. And the whole idea of servant leadership is really effective because. If they feel like you're going to be there to make them successful, to make the whole entire organization successful, they will walk to the ends of the earth for you because they believe that you have the interest of not just them, but everyone else and not your own self-interest. So I I go back to maybe a better way to think about it is not being in control, but being in command. Because command says you give an order and they will follow you. And they would do that because they believe in you and the mission, Hmm. not because you control them with some knobs or something. But that requires a lot of work, and credibility and leadership is at the core of all of that. How do you establish your credibility? I think it's by being open.
1: Wow, there, there's a lot we could unpack right there that uh, is so so valuable. What advice would you have in particular for you know somebody who is really just getting started as a leader? Uh, whether it's in Cutco or outside of Cutco, they're starting as a leader and they're beginning to try to establish credibility and to develop a followership. What are, what are some of the advice that you would give someone like that?
0: There's a great quote from a very wise Greek philosopher named Epictetus, And he said, you were born with two ears and one mouth. Use them in the same proportion. <laughs> so as a leader, I think the most important skill you can ever develop and can continue to practice is listening. And listening deeply, listening for understanding, listening for relationship. Because it's through the listening then you can formulate and say, you can say the right thing because you know where somebody stands. And they're standing here and you want them to go there. You listen to why they're standing here, what's holding them back, and then you know what to say in order to move them forward into that place, how to encourage that action. The best leaders are incredible listeners. And they know what to say for that person in that moment. So it's not about them. It's about that person you're trying to lead and inspire. Mm. So I I think as a leader, it's so easy to say, okay, they're expecting me to go out here and like say something brilliant now. Actually, they want to be heard. They want to be known. They want to be seen. So see them. That's the best thing you can do as a leader.
1: Wow. That was very, very powerful and insightful. I think that, uh, people can get a lot out of really thinking about that concept and how are they demonstrating their ability to listen, their sincere interest in others. These are all some of the principles that uh, we try to expose some of our young people to early on in life, just especially as they're starting in selling, right? That selling, a lot of selling is about making sure you listen so that you can know what the person needs and be able to cater your offering to them. And uh, I I think that translation right right over to leadership as well
0: i still remember my training from Cutco. you don't go in like hi i'm from Cutco to sell you knives you say hello i'm from Cutco. how are your knives that's the first thing you ask like how do you cut today show me your knives yeah that's the way we were trained It's like, yeah. help me understand and if you already have cuckoo knives i'm not going to try to sell you anything i'm going to say thank you for being part of the Cutco family etc and they will tell you i'm frustrated with this and that whatever and you can just sell to those needs right and so i i keep coming back to as a leader where are your people standing what are their problems how are they looking at the world how do you have empathy for them i think that that what listening does it helps you be more empathetic and i think having empathy is really important at the same time though having confidence that the path that you're trying to forge the objective is worth fighting for worth working for and confidence in yourself and the team to achieve it you may not be there yet but You know, you're going to get there. And the third thing is humility, confidence and humility don't necessarily go in the same words we think, but I think humility says, I don't have all the answers. I don't even expect me to have all the answers, but I think that the team around me will all have the answers together, right? It's a saying when you have humility, when you're humble, you realize that you are prone to making mistakes. So you say you're sorry. And therefore, again, builds your credibility, builds that relationship. And it also just kind of reduces the pressure on the leader to always have the answer, to always be perfect. I think that's so dangerous because we're not. We're very human. Uh, So the, the sooner we can sit in that humanity, appreciate it for all of its good, all of its challenges, and be very transparent and open about it to the people you're leading, it just it's a much healthier relationship, I think, that says, realistically, we're going to change the ways that we work together as a leader and a follower. My hope is that when, and I talk about this in my current book, when you're creating a lot of change and disruption, you have to create a movement. Because if you're the only leader, you're never going to get very far. But if you create a network, an ecosystem of other people who are following you, who they become leaders themselves. They step into that place then you have a movement. You have people who step, move from being followers to leaders themselves and developing their own followership. Yeah. And,
1: it's and, exactly and awesome. I love, I love what you wrote there in the book about, it's only a movement if it moves without you, right? And that the ultimate in leadership is creating enough of a movement where even when you're not there or you're not present or you're not actively influencing that the movement continues to move and that you've built something that sort of perpetuates, you know, into the future, even without you. So that was a powerful thought. And that's, I think that's a great concept for a lot of young people to think about is like, what would my business be like if I wasn't here for a while? You know, what would my organization be like if I wasn't here for a while? Is it moving without me?
0: Yeah. And I think one particular thing, as you go up in, in your people, the career ladders, it's really important to be able to take time off away from the business every day. let it run without you, be able to delegate. I think that's the next level of leadership is to be able to delegate and have confidence that they can accomplish it. And also have the communications in place that and you know what they're working on and you can manage on an exceptional basis. So creating that accountability at the same time. But it's important because as a leader, as you move up, you have to have time to think about the future because no one else is gonna be thinking about the future. So I talked to a lot of leaders and I said, well, how are you focusing on your future customers? Oh, I don't have time to think about the future. I'm just putting up fires in my own organization. And I go, that's a failure of leadership. Because what they're saying is, I don't trust the people who are one level below me to take care of those problems. I have to have a finger in everything. Versus the most effective and most powerful leaders I see out there, they're kind of sitting back. They're spending half of their time thinking about the future about a quarter of their time thinking about just like immediate issues that are on the plate that just have to get done. They're about a quarter of time thinking about more near term things, but they're not spending their time putting out fires. That's the job of their teams. That's why they develop those people to do that. And I think in some ways it's because those leaders feel like they're leading, they're adding value because they're in the thick of things. They're not. The Mm -hmm. real value they can add is to step back away and say, are we on the right path? I mean, meeting with the customers where they need to be, to have that leader ask the wise, wise questions that no one else is asking, that's going to set the company on its course for the future.
1: Wow, that uh, concept is so powerful. It really is something that just gets me thinking about uh, my own leadership and, and where where I'm taking my team. I know that as we're recording this, interview here, I am preparing for a meeting with uh, a lot of my key leaders in my organization, and the bulk of what I feel like I want to accomplish at this meeting is just about, you know, do we have the ladders leaned on the right walls? Are we pursuing the right right paths right now to get to where we want to be, you know? Or have we, you know, sort of got ourselves stuck in this sort of circle of a... doing what we've been doing just because it's easy. So I think that's an important conversation for leaders to have with their people every so often, you know, whatever, at whatever interval, but uh, it just hearing you say that just really reinforced that that's a really key thing that I need to do in in my own team. So Mm -hmm. that was awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. So if people want to be able to follow you, learn from you, how can they follow you? Where do you hang out on social media? What resources do you have that you might want to share?
0: Well, I think definitely come to my website, charlinglee.com, all my names spelled out. And in almost every channel, that is the same handle. The only exception is Facebook. It's Charling Lee author um, on Facebook. But everywhere else it's Charling Lee. <laughs> Just kind of lock that down early on. So really, Very consistent, trying to be very consistent with my brand.
1: Yeah, great. Well, uh, it's Charlene with a C and Lee L I. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And as you know, the theme of the podcast is about changing lives. And as you look ahead into the future, how do you aspire to change people's lives through your work or through your influence?
0: Well, I've always set my purpose as helping leaders and organizations thrive with disruption. And so what I'm trying to do now is to inspire as many people as possible to become disruptors. And what I mean by that is they see in themselves the ability to create exponential change in their organizations, even in their communities and society. And I'm helping them with a book. I'm starting a new business on the side of a network of disruptors called quantum networks. And the whole idea here is that there's so much change that needs to happen, so many wrongs that need to be righted. We're never going to get to the place where we need to be if people continue doing the status quo. We need more disruptors out there to challenge the status quo, create change, but impactful change, and be able to do that with confidence and humility. Yeah,
1: that was great. Charlene, if if I can somehow impact or help uh, you and your cause with uh, all the change that needs to happen and how, how we can be able to inspire people to become disruptors and to uh, help facilitate uh, the different changes that are needed, you know, sign me up as an ally. (laughs) uh, I fully support what you said right there. That was really powerful. So is there anything else you feel like you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap this up today?
0: I am, I would just say again, I know that the people listening to this are very much into changing lives. and, And I go, I would just never doubt the ability for each and every single person to do that. Uh, it may feel sometimes like, what can I add? And uh, I would just say, every person has his unique perspective. And that perspective is valuable because it comes from you. So I just encourage you to share that. Really center yourself on that uniqueness that you have because it is extremely valuable. That, and I hope that you raise your voice and share it.
1: Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Charlene. Uh, this has been really insightful. I very much appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to share your insights with our audience. Thank you. That was Charlene Lee and you know when I think about that interview I just think about wisdom and insight. You can tell that Charlene has a vast amount of experience and that that has provided her with a an excellent perspective on what makes people successful and what makes businesses successful. I love where she talked about selling versus helping people at the beginning and the understanding that real selling is helping people it's helping people to make decisions that are in their best interest and if you really believe in what you're doing and believe you're adding value then it's easier to influence easier to sell so many good things on her path through the business world taking her to where she is now from her books uh the idea of listening and being a better listener having confidence and humility uh, rolled into one. She had some great stuff on why people follow others, the idea of servant leadership. And I also love toward the end where Charlene said that, you know, there's so much change that needs to happen. As we look at our world, this really is true. Like there's a lot of great things happening, of course, but there also are changes that have to happen. As we evolve, as we grow, there are changes that have to happen and that we need people to lead those changes. We need people to lead those movements. And she challenged us at the end to never doubt the impact that you can have as one person. One person can make the difference between success and failure in an organization, in a group, and uh, and potentially one person can change the world. So great stuff. I was inspired. Hope you were too. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about Changing Lives.